Psalm 36 is where we will be this morning, Psalm 36. This is the last Sunday, I'm 99% sure. Somebody gets up here and talks about Psalms again next week, I'm sorry. I think we're starting Galatians though next week. And so I believe this is the last Sunday morning in the Psalms and I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, the Psalms to me are a very, very special place. And one of the things that I appreciate so much about Psalms, but truly the entirety of God's word is how realistic it is to life. How real it is about the challenges of life, the difficulties we face as the people of God. Um, They don't sugarcoat things. They speak to the reality of the hardships that we face in a fallen world full of sin but they speak to that reality and show us how we are to respond, how we are to respond in faith to God and worship of God, the truths uh, that we are to hold so dear. And that's really what scripture does. We'll get to Hebrews 4 here soon and on Sunday mornings, but Hebrews 4, a major component of that chapter is just that Jesus Christ is a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, who understands our weakness and can help us in our times of need. But that sympathy for our weakness and the challenges of the circumstances of life, that extends throughout the Bible. And we see it in Psalms, we see it here in Psalm 36. And this morning as we look at Psalm 36, we'll look at it in three different parts. The first part we'll look at are the characteristics of the wicked. That part where the Psalm speaks to the reality of our circumstances and the reality that we live in a sinful world and we're surrounded by people who do not know God and who live out wicked lives and lives sinfulness that impacts us as followers of God. But the psalm, psalmist doesn't keep our focus on our circumstances or the sinfulness of the world. Instead, part two, the psalm turns our attention and our focus onto the characteristics of God's love. So we'll look at the characteristics of the wicked, but the psalm wants our focus to be on the second part, the characteristics of God's love. And so it kind of gives us some theology here. It gives us part one, the theology of the sinfulness of man. Part two, the theology of God's love, but theology always demands a response. The third part we'll look at is a response of faith. The response that we're to have to the reality of sin in this world and the sinfulness around us, the response we're to have in light of God's love for us is a response of faith. So we'll look at part one here, the characteristics of the wicked. And there's eight different characteristics that we'll highlight from these first four verses. The first four verses, characteristics of the wicked. It says, transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. 
He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. The first characteristic we see here of the wicked in verse 1, transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There's actually two legitimate ways that the Hebrew here could be translated. So some of our Bibles, I think particularly the NIV, might say something very differently. It it can legitimately be translated, an oracle is in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. So if taken that way, if, if you're going the route where an oracle can be tran- or an oracle in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked, this is really an introductory statement where the author of Psalm 36 is saying, "Hey, as an introduction to what we're about to talk about, I have a word from God for you concerning the sinfulness of humanity, concerning the sinfulness of this world you see around you. And that translation makes perfect sense. It's a very legitimate translation. It makes perfect sense. So if that's what your Bible says, just roll with it. It's just instead of having seven or eight characteristics of the wicked, you have seven with this introductory statement. And just as a side note, when you see something like this, where you're like, okay, there's two very distinct yet legitimate ways that this can be translated from Hebrew to English. It's not something that should shake your faith in the word of God. Like, oh, is there a problem here? Because people will throw that at you, right? Like there's so many different translations. These examples where there's legitimately two different ways it can be translated are extremely rare extremely rare. This is one of the very few circumstances. And the reality is, as far as the overall message and teaching of Psalm 36, it makes no difference whatsoever. So it's actually something that should strengthen your faith in God's word. The fact that there's so few circumstances where you have this drastic of a difference that in translations where they're both perfectly possible. But in addition, it makes no difference to the overall teaching of God's word here in Psalm 36. But if we stick with the New American Standard, the translation it has here, transgression speaks to the ungodly within its heart. What the first characteristic is painting for us here is a picture of an individual whose heart is so full of wickedness, so full of sinfulness, there's almost a relational aspect to it. The way as followers of Christ, we're called to have this relationship with God and to walk with God. For the wicked, there's really this relational consumption with evil. Evil is all they can think about. It's their distraction Throughout the day, it speaks to them within their heart. It's a relational consumption with evil. The second characteristic that Psalm 36 gives us here, there in verse 1, the second half, there is no fear of God before his eyes. There is no fear of God before his eyes. This Psalm 1 verse, or Psalm 36 verse 1, this comes up in Romans chapter 3. Paul uses this verse as the first three chapters of Romans. Romans is all about the gospel. It's the gospel of God. 
But before you can understand the good news of the salvation we have in Christ, you have to understand the bad news of the damning position your sin has put you in in relation to God. And that's exactly the approach that Romans takes. Romans 1 to 3, those first three chapters, Paul is showing how all of humanity is enslaved to sin and alienated from God. In chapter two, I'm sorry, in chapter one, he focuses on the Gentiles. In chapter two, he focuses on the Jews. And in chapter three, he's summing it all up. All of humanity is alienated from God because of their sinfulness and ruined because of their sinfulness. And he quotes Psalm 36, verse one here in chapter three of Romans. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That has a lot of implications for your life. When you don't properly fear God, when you don't recognize the holiness of God, the majesty of God and who you are in relationship to him, that lack of fear of God has a lot of implications for your life. I'm just going to give you some here in no particular order. Uh, But what does the Bible tell us is the beginning of godly wisdom? The fear of God. The fear of God, Proverbs 9.10, is the beginning of wisdom. Without a proper fear, recognition of the majesty of God, you cannot have any wisdom from God. You're stuck in a worldly way of thinking, in man-made wisdom, in man-made philosophy and religion. If there's no fear of God, there's no hope for any type of truth-filled, spirit-led thinking. No fear of God also means there's no concern of judgment. If God hates sin, and he does, and he promises to destroy sin, if you don't fear God, who cares? If there's no fear of God, then there's no fear of judgment. But the problem is that judgment is very real and judgment is absolutely going to occur. And so if there's no fear of God and no fear of judgment, there's no opportunity for the gospel to save you from that judgment. We come to reconciliation with the Father by faith in Jesus Christ, by faith in the provision that he's given us. That's the theme of scripture from Genesis to Revelation is that we are reconciled to God by grace through faith. But somebody who fails to recognize their spiritual poverty before a holy creator will never, can never come to that place of salvation. That's what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit because they can receive the gospel. They can be saved. Another impact when you, of not properly fearing God and recognizing his holiness is exactly what it says here in Psalm 36. It inflates your own view of yourself. In verse two, it says, this wickedness, this sinfulness flatters him in his own eyes, flatters the wicked in their own 
eyes. That's going to be the third characteristic that I want to highlight for us from Psalm 36, this inflated view of self, an inflated view of self. That is the tendency of sinful man is to overestimate themselves. Go back to Romans 1 where Paul is talking about the hopelessness of our spiritual condition because of our sin. Romans 1.22, that's one of the characteristics. They profess to be wise when they are fools. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about how the wisdom of God is foolishness to this world. Judges 17.6, one of the themes that we see throughout Judges, every person doing what is right in their own eyes. We see this around us. We see this in the world constantly. Pick up any magazine, pick up any newspaper, turn on the TV. Sinful humanity is devastatingly convinced that they are very wise, that they are very smart. They are very intelligent. It's impossible for sinful humanity to properly evaluate its own spiritual state, to recognize the reality of sin. Psalm 36, it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. As you grow as a Christian and as you grow in your knowledge of God, you definitely feel the opposite of this happen. You go from when you first become a believer to, you know, you recognize you're a sinner and you recognize your need of a savior. But as you grow in your faith and as you grow in your knowledge of God, you become even more sensitive to your sin. And things you were okay with five, 10, 15 years ago, today they bother you. They bother you, you become so much more sensitive and you see sin in so many more areas of your life. You start to recognize pride and anger and a lack of self-control in areas that you never saw it before. The knowledge of God does the opposite of this. The knowledge of God makes us even more sensitive to our sin, aware of the holiness of God and aware of our need for a savior. The fourth characteristic that Psalm 36 gives us here of the wicked regard speech. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. In verse three, the words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. Crudeness, sinful speech, that's just a way of life for somebody alienated from God. And it's not just about cussing or bad jokes. It's not just about crude talk, but slander, gossip, a a, a mouth that reveals the sinfulness and the hatred in the heart. Deceit, lying becomes a habit. Have you known people or even fallen into this trap yourself? I have, where I've told a lie and then I step back and I say, why did I even lie about that? Like, there's no reason for me to even lie about that. But deceit is just such a part of the natural sinful heart that for the wicked, the one alienated from God, it's the habit. Sinful speech is the habit. There's no truth within them. There's no truth in their heart. 
They've already been cut off from that because of their sinfulness. So of course their heart overflows to their speech and sinful speech. The fifth characteristic here in verse three, they cease to be wise and to do good. Instantly reminded of Isaiah 64, six, everything done apart from Christ is tainted with sin. Even the best of human actions apart from God is filled with sin, tainted with sin. I even struggle with that in my own heart. As I grow more sensitive to sin, I look at the things that I, that I do, sometimes in serving God or just whatever the case may be, and I, I, I find like nine, maybe I'm making up numbers here, 98% of it is good. And I can see what God's generating in my heart there, but I can still find like one or 2% that I'm like, eh, I don't know if I like that. I think I see some pride, some sinful ambition there. And, and, and uh, that's as a follower of Christ, I still find sin tainting the things that I do in my life. But for those alienated from God, the wicked, those who are, as Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, enemy of God, enemies of God, they have completely ceased to be wise and to do good. Even the best of man-made righteousness is full of filth, filthy rags. I think the sixth part I want to highlight for us here is interesting. Verse 4, he plans wickedness upon his bed. I think that's interesting because it's interesting how much the Bible speaks to what you think about while you're laying in bed. It comes up a lot. If you read through the Proverbs, you read through the Psalms, it's a regular occurrence where the Bible speaks to what do you think about when you're laying in bed awake, 3 a.m., 11 p.m., whatever it may be. The godly are said to dwell upon the word of God, to meditate on his word day and night, to consider the ways of the Lord. The wicked here, it's the opposite, planning wickedness upon their bed. And, and what's being put on display here is just the consuming nature of sin. Have you noticed that about sin? How consuming it is? Enslaving The Bible, for a reason, talks about us being enslaved to sin. Whether it's immorality, alcoholism, greed, whatever it is, sin is consuming, enslaving. Sin, another characteristic of it here, or not here, but just in general, is it takes you further than you ever intended for it to take you. The destructive effects of it enslave you and take you further than you ever intended for it to take you. It, it consumes your thoughts. And as it says here, it sets you on a path that is not good. This enslaving, consuming nature of sin, it puts you on a trajectory in life. And the end is death. Destruction in this life inevitably and ultimately spiritual death. Sin always takes you further than you desire to go. People don't wake up one day and say, you know, I wanna be a drug addict. People don't wake up one day and say, you know, I wanna become 
addicted to immorality. Or typically, I don't, I'm, I'm, I want to go out and have an affair. You know, sin takes you further than you ever intended for it to take you. It's an unintentional path because the entryway doesn't look that bad all the time, right? The entryway is deceitful. Sin is deceitful. Go back to Genesis 3. It didn't look that bad. But sin is a poisonous apple. It doesn't look that bad on the surface, but its end is death. It sets you on a path that is not good. Now, we can't forget God's grace because it seems pretty hopeless at this point. But the gospel is always relevant because the reality is we all start in this place. We all start slaves to sin and enemies of God. And that slavery takes us to different levels of destruction in this life. Some of us, by God's grace, are saved at a very young age. We're we're stopped from making too much of a mess of things, right? But some of us, we don't come to know Christ until 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years old. And sin leaves a whole trail of destruction in our life. But regardless of where you're at, God's grace is always more than sufficient. God's grace is always more than enough to take somebody who's on this trajectory towards death and damnation and this path of destruction is behind them. God's grace is always more than sufficient to take that person, reconcile them to God, and make spectacular use of their life in the service of God's kingdom. Your life is never beyond repair. If you're on this earth, your purpose is to glorify and serve God. And you can do that starting today. If you repent, turn from your sin, and commit your life to following Jesus Christ. From from today forward, what we're seeing here in verses 1 through 4, that can be your old life. And Romans 6 is all about you are raised in Christ to walk in a newness of life. And sure, past the destruction, some of those things stick with you the rest of your life. But God's grace is more than enough to allow you to gloriously serve his kingdom, serve his church, and enjoy the things that we see here in the second half of 36. But before we do that, lastly, verse 4 He does not despise evil. The eighth and final characteristic here of the wicked. They don't despise evil. How can they? If you don't love God, how can you despise evil? If evil is all you know, how can you despise it? If you don't fear God, your life is lived out in ignorance. Verses 1 through 4 focus us in on the characteristics of the wicked, the wickedness of men. And we see this all around us. We see the effects of it every single day. And it's discouraging, it's disheartening. We don't like it, we hate it, but it should not be our focus. Uh, It's a reality that we don't ignore, that we have to be reconciled to, but our focus 
is on our glorious God, the God that we belong to, the God who has redeemed us out of this sinfulness and out of this world to follow him. So where should our gaze be in this evil world? It should be on the goodness of God, on the love and character of God. And that's where verses five to nine here turn our attention and we get this remarkable contrast between the wickedness of this world and the characteristics of God's love. Let's look at the characteristics of God's love here. Verses five to nine. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house. And you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. I love the abrupt change in focus. Again, I just, it means so much to me that God is so honest about our circumstances because it's the reality that I feel in this world. I think life is tough. I think living in this world is tough. And it's just such a refreshing thing to see how Psalm 36 redirects our attention because that's what we've got to do in this life, right? And we get focused on the characteristics of God's love and I've got, sorry, my numbers are wrong here. I think I've got five or six. We'll just see how it goes. Characteristics of God's love. Um, The first characteristic, it's immeasurable. God's love is immeasurable. Look at verse five. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Loving kindness, hesed, God's steadfast love unconditional love based on his choice to choose us as the objects of his love. And and what the psalmist here is doing is wanting to draw our attention to how immeasurable this love is. He says, your faithfulness reaches to the skies. His faithfulness is perfect. It's extreme language. His loving kindness extends to the heavens. His faithfulness reaches to the skies. Where do the skies and the heavens end? Where does space end? I don't know. As far as I know, it doesn't. Maybe somebody out there has a more scientific answer than I do. But as far as I know, it doesn't. Space is infinite. The skies go on forever. And that is the point that the psalmist is getting at. He's trying to tell, okay, he wants to communicate to us the immeasurable love of God. How does he do that? What is the most vast thing we can even attempt to get our mind around? How about space? How about the never-ending universe? That is God's love for you. Like if you, 
it's hard to just pass over that if you stop and think about it. Like, that's something you have to stop and really ponder that the infinitely powerful, infinitely all-knowing God, creator of this universe, has immeasurable love for you. Individually, like you. Of course, us as the church, but like stop and think about that even on an individual level. I mean, that should occupy a lot of minutes in your day. Thinking about the immeasurable, unfathomable love that God has for you. Are you in difficult circumstances? Think about the fact that even in the midst of those circumstances, God has an unmeasurable love for you. Have you ever been in a place where you couldn't feel God's presence and you you just don't feel it? You feel alienated from God. You felt that maybe you're in a place that his love and his faithfulness doesn't reach. You might feel that way, but your feelings are wrong. Your feelings are incorrect. I've felt that way, but those feelings are wrong. The psalmist wants our focus and our attention and our mind to dwell on the truth, the reality that God's love for you remains immeasurable. His love reaches to the heavens, faithfulness to the skies. It's infinite. And along with this infinite love is the second characteristic I'd want to draw out for you in verse 6. His perfect righteousness. It's one thing to have immeasurable love and passion. But when you couple that with perfect righteousness, with the holiness of God, it's even more powerful. God is perfectly righteous. It says in verse 6, his righteousness is like the mountains of God. It's an interesting way for him to put that. Some familiar translations might say God's righteousness is like the mighty mountains. But what he's doing here, it's like he's taking a few different approaches, trying to just communicate to us how immense, immeasurable God is. So like we just, we're in space. His faithfulness, his love reaches to the heavens. Now he brings it back down to earth. And he's like, okay. What is something on this earth that is so amazing that I can compare God's righteousness to it? And he's thinking through all the different things on earth and he's like, how about mountains? Mountains are pretty spectacular. And if you've ever been on a mountain, it it can be quite an experience. And so he starts to think through like the mountains of the earth. You know, he's like, okay, what about the Himalayas? Eh. What about the Alps? What about the Rocky Mountains? He's thinking through these different mountains. Like, what can I compare God to on this earth? And the, the reality is nothing. Like, nothing on this earth can compare to the awesomeness of our God. So he just goes back to, I'm just going to compare God with God here. His righteousness is like the mountains of God. God-like mountains. Just whatever 
mountains you can think of. So like start with just the most spectacular place you've ever been. For me, I guess maybe like Winter Park and you go to the top of Winter Park and like it's an eerie feeling, especially because I'm a bad skier as Drew knows and it's hard to get down. Like it's an eerie feeling at the top. Like there's no trees and you're just kind of overwhelmed by the majesticness of it. So that feeling, just multiply it out by infinity. God's righteousness is like the mountains of God. It's like God-like mountains. It should overwhelm you in that way. Nothing compares to his God, to, to our God. And when it talks about his righteousness, it's talking about his moral purity and perfection. As soon as you start talking about the power and love of God, it's important to immediately add on to that his holiness. All the attributes work together. Would you want an all-powerful God who is not also perfectly righteous? That's a terrifying thing. That's a terrifying thing but we have an almighty, loving God who is perfectly righteous. He goes on the third characteristic about God and his love that he highlights here, perfect wisdom, perfect wisdom. Your judgments are like a great deep. Just realize that God's ways of thinking are so far beyond ours. I'm, I even look at Paul. In Romans, we've talked about Romans a few times, all about the gospel. In chapters 1 through 11, Paul is really laying out for us extensively the theology of the gospel. And how does he end chapter 11? Just lost in worship of God for his incredible wisdom in the gospel. It's like Paul steps back at the end of chapter 11 and looks back at all he's taught about the gospel and just instantly he has nothing else he can do but just praise God for his incredible, infinite wisdom. It's beyond what Paul can understand. It's beyond what any of us can understand. And it's human nature for us to want to understand things. And that's perfectly fine, right? It's perfectly fine for us to, in fact, I would say it's biblically demanded, commanded that we seek after the wisdom of God and we seek to think like he does and understand what he understands. But we're going to hit a limit there, right? Uh, Our human minds can only go so far. And when we hit that limit, our response should be faith and worship of an infinitely wise God. Not us pushing back and saying, hey, I don't understand that, so it must be wrong. (laughs) But that is the human nature, right? I mean, you think about like a three-year-old. Three-year-olds regularly ask their parents, why, why, why? And that's a good thing. It's good to have an inquisitive child who wants to understand and wants to know the why behind things. And as parents, it's awesome when they get it, right? You tell them the why and you're like, okay, that makes sense. But if you explain the why to a three-year-old and the three-year-old says, hey, that doesn't make sense to me. You're not very smart. 
It's like, no, 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 no. You're just a three-year-old who doesn't get it, right? It's like that with us and God. God loves us to seek the why. We should seek the why and seek to grow in our knowledge and understanding of him. But we realize his judgments, as it says here in verse, um, verse 6, are like the great deep. We're going to hit a point where it becomes faith. It becomes us trusting and following by faith. The fourth characteristic of God's love that we have here is that his love is a providing love. You look at verse 6, the Lord preserves man and beast. It's once again another characteristic of God that we find throughout scripture. Throughout scripture, whether you're in the Old Testament, the New Testament, Genesis to Revelation, our God is a provider. Our God is a sustainer. That incredible love that he calls us to meditate on and think about is a love that he puts into action to meet your needs. Uh, Psalm 1 ends saying, God knows the ways of the righteous. He looks after the ways of the righteous. That is a remarkable thought that the infinite God of this universe is intimately intimately involved in all the steps of your life. The Lord preserves man and beast. We see his faithfulness throughout creation. And that's one of the points that Jesus strongly makes is that, hey, if God so cares for the beast of this world, how much do you think he loves you whom he sent his son to die for? He doesn't look at the beast of this world and say, hey, you're my child. Yet he cares for them. So how much more do you think he does care for you as his child? God's grace and his provision is far more abundant than we can ever imagine, than than we can ever deserve. And we see it all around us. Verse 8, he gives them to drink of the river of his delights. We get to delight in this fellowship that we have with our God. Once again, the Psalms are very realistic about the challenges of life. It's not just glossing over the reality that we live in challenging circumstances. We live in a sinful world. Psalm 36 makes that very clear for us. It's not delusional, but yet in the midst of this sinful, troubling world, we can know the delights of fellowship with God, of being his child. That's why Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books because it draws us to delight in the God of our salvation, that at any moment we have instant access to the Father through Jesus Christ. Whatever the circumstances are, whatever the challenges, the difficulties, there's gonna be many, but we get to face all of those with instant, continual access to the Father. What a beautiful delight and blessing that is. 
Verse 9, in your light we see light. We come to know truth and reality through our, through our Lord. So verses 1 through 9, again, like I mentioned earlier, they give us some theological education. 1 to 4 is about the characteristics of the wicked. One through four, verses 1 through 4, a lot of theology about sinfulness, the effects it has on this world, and the effects it has on mankind. Verses 5 to 9 are about the characteristics of God's love. But like all theology, it demands response. Theology only becomes beneficial when we respond to it with our hearts. When God reveals himself, he demands a response of faith. That's what we have in verses 10 to 12, a a, a response of faith. Let's look at three different things we see here in verses 10 to 12. I'm going to read these verses. Oh, continue your loving kindness towards those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come upon me and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the doers of iniquity have fallen. They have been thrust down and cannot rise. Three characteristics of this response of faith that I would point out. First of all, it knows God. Everything here is built upon the presupposition that you know God. Uh, Praying for what God wills. Uh, That's the question that we should all evaluate. Do we know God? John 14, 6, Jesus says that he alone is the one legitimate way, the only way to know God. Because until you come to know the Father through Jesus Christ, you're trapped in verses 1 to 4. You're a slave to sin until by faith in Christ you are released from that slavery. Only then can you pick back up in verse 10 here and talk about, understand the goodness of God. So the response of faith here is from somebody who knows God. But it's somebody second here, they know God, but they also trust God. They trust him as a place of refuge. The temptation as people is to trust in ourselves, to trust in the things of this world. Uh, who do I know that can get me out of a jam? Who, okay, I have this money here. I have access to this money here, so I'm going to be okay. Or I have this job, so I'm going to be okay. Whatever circumstances I face in this world, the temptation that we have as, as people is to think, okay, how can I overcome the circumstances? through whatever resources I have. But the, characteristics, the characteristic of a response of faith is trusting in God, not himself, but God as a place of refuge. He turns to God and says, let not the foot of pride come upon me and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. As he sees the sinfulness of this world around him, It's God that he looks to as a refuge. He doesn't despair. It's tempting to despair in this world as things spin out of control, as we see just the chaos around us. It's tempting to despair. But the word of God calls us to trust in the Father as our place of refuge. 
He's sovereign over all things. He's the one we turn to in our weakness. He's our sympathetic high priest that Hebrews 4 calls him, who understands our weakness and intercedes for us. And we know that God, his glorious purposes, his power will win out. That's the third characteristic of the response of faith. Faith believes the outcome. The doers, verse 12, the doers of iniquity have fallen. They have been thrust down and cannot rise. We know that our Lord will return. That the sinful, destructive planet that uh, we live in now, a new heaven and a new earth is in God's plan. And his plan will win the day. We know that our citizenship is in his eternal kingdom, not this failing world. So how do we apply Psalm 36? The first thing I would say that I've said already, but you can't say it enough, is do you know God? Which part of this psalm do you fall into? Can you truly claim that all of Psalm 36 is yours? That God is your place of refuge, that you have been saved from this sinful world by the grace of God. Do you know Jesus Christ is your savior? Have you found the spiritual poverty that you are in, repented of it, and trusted in the sufficient grace of Jesus Christ? That's the first question, because if not, you're still a slave to sin. You're still trapped in verses one to four and judgment is coming. And when that judgment comes, you will be destroyed along with the sinful world system. Do you know God? As I said earlier, the beautiful thing about the gospel is it is more than sufficient to save you at any place that you find yourself in life. At no point, at no age, do you get to an unredeemable place. The gospel calls us to turn, repent from our sin, and trust in Jesus Christ. And then all of Psalm 36 opens up to you. The, the, the infinite love of God becomes the place where you can take delight, take refuge in the God of your salvation. For those of us who are in Christ, I would encourage us, don't be focused on the wicked. Don't be focused on the sinfulness around you. We can become obsessed with the sinfulness of this world where it preoccupies our mind. And what we really think about with most of our day is just how much we hate the sinfulness of this world. That's not supposed to be our preoccupation. That's not supposed to be the main thing that we think about. Certainly we do think about it. Certainly we do recognize it and we rightfully hate the sin in our own lives and the sin that we see around us. 
That is right, but it's not the core of our focus. Our focus, our obsession is the love of God. And we respond in faith to that. It's a response of faith that takes place at the moment of salvation, but it's a daily response of faith. Every single day we wake up and we renew our commitment to Jesus Christ. We take up our cross daily, looking to grow in our understanding of his love and in our faith in him, trusting him for both the daily needs, our daily bread, the the challenges that we face day in and day out, but then also the big picture that while we live in a challenging world, in a sinful world, we know that ultimately God's plans always prevail. That new heaven, new earth is coming that we are eternally members of his kingdom and that changes everything about how we live in this present world. Changes our priorities, our passions, our concerns and our desires. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that while we do face challenges in the reality of sin in our own lives and around us every day, We can do that knowing that you are Lord of all, that you love us immeasurably, that you have immeasurable wisdom, power, and that you employ all that in caring for those who belong to you. And I just pray that that would be our focus every day, that our focus would be on just your greatness, glorifying you, telling others about you, serving the church, and and, uh, living our lives in anticipation of the new heavens and the new earth where we get to live with you for eternity. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.